Good evening. There are some passages in Scripture where you read them and you have to read and read and read for ages before you get to anything that you think makes sense and is at all relevant to your life today. Huge chunks of Scripture are a bit like that. But then there are other passages. There are passages like the one that Jonathan just read to us. You start at the beginning and you can almost give a sermon on every phrase of every verse that is there in that passage because the passage itself is so dynamic. There is so much content in it and there is so much that is absolutely basic to where we are as Christians. And so it's my pleasure to be able to take us on a journey through these few verses this evening as we look at them and as we drink in from them all the truth that is there. It will really help you a lot if you can have your Bibles open to the page that Jonathan read, which is 1083, and those eight verses from chapter 15 of John's Gospel. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Two years ago, Dave and I moved house. If you went to visit us in our old house, you would have noticed that it had three rooms downstairs, three rooms upstairs, and a bathroom. And the furniture was positioned so, so, and so. If you come to visit us in our new house, you will find it also has three rooms downstairs, and three rooms upstairs. And the furniture is still positioned so, so, and so. In fact, on the day we moved, even the people who helped us to move said, this house is exactly like the one you've just left. And it is, our house is exactly the same inside as the one we left. But outside is another story. We moved because we wanted the garden. Dave and I have never been gardeners. We've pottered a little bit from time to time, but we now have a house which has a 75 meter long back garden and we are loving it. We are learning so much about what it means to actually be a gardener, and we have got a huge amount to learn. I am so slow at taking things in, but I have gathered a few things in the two years that we have been there. I think God is a good gardener. I think that because as we read through the Bible, we see God acting as a gardener several times. In fact, if we opened our Bibles to the beginning of Genesis, then we find God as the gardener 
planting the Garden of Eden, the place where he put Adam and Eve to live on this earth. He could have chosen anywhere, but he chose a garden. As we see God taking the Jews on a journey to get them to the promised land, he uses language to encourage them on their way, which is all about gardening terminology. You will go to a land flowing with milk and honey. You will go to a place where the vines produce grapes that are this big. It will be wonderful and wondrous in the land that I will give you. And when Simon spoke to us last week about what heaven is going to be like, he spoke about it as being a place where there is a new heaven and a new earth and where God is continuing to be in the midst of creation and the things that he has made. I am sure that will include plant life and vegetation, signs of life that are around us. God has been a gardener from the beginning of time and will continue to be a gardener, the most constant of all gardeners because his work goes on and on. And gardeners have to do some things which seem to be a little harsh from time to time. Verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that I will be even more fruitful. Pruning in the garden is a fine art that I have yet to master. It seems to me that you can almost wipe a plant from the face of the earth under the term pruning, and next year it will come back and flourish amazingly and beautifully. I have two particular plants in mind that I do this to. One is a huge fuchsia bush, and the other one is called an abutilon, and it grows massively. And every summer they produce millions of flowers, and every autumn I cut them back to about this much out of their pots. And lo and behold, next spring or summer, they are massive and fantastic again. That is pruning. In our lives, we get pruned as well, don't we? Pruning is all of those things that happen to us which we might call hardship or discipline. They are things that God allows us to go through actually for our own good. And that is not just being simplistic. I am sure if the plants had eyes and could see me coming towards them with the secateurs in my hand, they would yell and scream and fight and kick because they don't want to lose what they have. When we are going through a period of hardship in our lives, when we are feeling that God seems remote from us, when we know that he is disciplining us for some reason, 
don't like it, do we? We would cry and skip, kick and scream against it too, and often we do, because it can hurt. Because we don't want to lose the bits of us that we actually have become quite accustomed to and that we like. And often it's things related to sin that we have in our lives where God has to come and has to discipline us in order to strengthen us for the future. We can't just stay as we are because if we always do just stay as we are, we won't actually grow. If I leave those plants without pruning them in the garden, they will not be as good next year, or at least so I am told. They will not produce as many flowers. They will not be as big and as bold and as beautiful. And if God does not deal with things in our lives under this system of disciplining us, then we will not grow either. We will not be all that we can be for him. We will not produce all the good fruit that he wants us to produce. And then there's the other type, isn't there, in verse 2. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit at all. There are some plants in the garden, though no matter what I have tried to do with them, are absolutely beyond the point of being revived. So what happens then is you get out maybe more than a secateur. We had a camellia, very severe death of the camellia. We got out the saw and we sawed through the very, very big branches that really to us didn't really seem like they were worth keeping around anymore. They weren't worth keeping around because they were diseased. They had something wrong with them and we were told that unless we cut these massive bits off our huge bush, then the whole bush could actually catch said disease and all of it could die. So it was harsh. It was a terrible measure and the camellia plant didn't look as if it enjoyed it one little bit. It all went brown for quite some time afterwards. But it had to be done. It had to be done for the good of the whole. And there are some who would seek to be in fellowship with other Christians, some who would seek to come along to church, but actually they aren't good for the whole either. It's not up to us to judge that at all. It is only up to God to look into our hearts and to see how we are before him. It's not for us to look at each other in that way. But there are some for whom God says, no, you cannot stay here anymore. There is nothing I can do with you because I have given you every chance. 
In our Bible study groups, we have been looking, haven't we, at Moses in the Old Testament. And we have had so many issues in our group as we have discussed the differences that there seem to be between the God of the Old Testament, who is full of wrath and justice, and the God of the New Testament, who loves us and calls us to be his own. And we've had conflicting ideas about how the same God can act in these two different ways. And some of us have looked ahead and said, well, in Scripture, actually, it is the same God. It seems harsh when we think about what God did to people in the Old Testament who refused to believe in him. And it seems harsh when we look forward to the end of time, when we look forward to Revelation, when we look forward to the judgment that will come at the end of the earth. And yet it is true, it is still part of the same God. There are branches that do not bear fruit. They are branches who have never really become Christians, not in their heart of hearts, not really. And they will be lost. And that seems hard too. It is the same God who is at work through the Bible. And the last thing about God as the gardener here. Every tidy gardener tidies up after themselves at the end of the day. They put all their tools away. They put all of the bits that they've just pruned off whatever sad bush it is in the bin, hopefully for recycling. And they leave the garden looking lovely for the next person who comes along to enjoy it. And that is what verse 6 is about. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Our God, the constant gardener, he moves us on. He prunes all of us. He disciplines all of us. He seeks the growth in all of us. And one day, there will be judgment for all of us. And if we are Christians, that is not something to be fearful of because God loves us. But if we don't know him, if our friends don't know him, then there is something to be fearful of because God will clean up. He will clean up the earth that he has made and he will make it new And there won't be anything left that does not come up to his standards. And that moves us on to the second part. What are his standards? Who is the next person who we can find in these verses? And that's fairly obvious. I am the true vine. The second person that we are looking at is the person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Last year, I was given a vine, and I have planted it, and it is growing and flourishing, you will be pleased to know. No grapes yet, 
but the vine looks healthy enough. Jesus, in this passage, calls himself the vine. Jesus is that rootstock, if you like, the one who is grown throughout all of the earth as a massive vine which twines around everyone and everything. And we are the little branches that come off that main stem. We are never the stem itself. We are only attached to it so that we can bear fruit. But Jesus himself is the vine. He lives for all time so that we can all grow in him. Verse 3 says, you are already clean. That's him speaking to his disciples. That's Jesus speaking to us as Christians. You are already clean because of the message I have spoken to you. I like the New Living Translation of that verse. It says, you have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Jesus spent about 33 years on this earth, during which time he taught his disciples, who then went on to write the Gospels, and the apostles who wrote some of the letters, and he left behind his one and only message. There is nothing to be added to it. There is no point at which we can say it is not enough because Jesus says that the gospel and the letters and the Old Testament, all that we have as scripture, is all that we need. He hasn't maliciously left any bits out. He has given us the whole message that is enough to clean us up, to discipline us and to set us on our way as people who are Bible-believing, as people who are to be found in him. We are already clean. I like that phrase. As we sit here tonight, we are not sitting as a people who are condemned. If we have put our trust in Jesus, then no matter what goes wrong in our lives, no matter what sin we commit, Jesus still looks at us as clean in him. That doesn't give us the liberty to do just exactly what we want. It's all held in this great tension. But it does mean that we don't have to be afraid. It does mean that we can simply seek to go on with him eternally. And it's the message itself of our salvation that cleans us up and that takes away all the rottenness that sin leaves in us. And then verse 4, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me.
remain in Jesus. It is so important for us to do that. I believe that we do that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, that the passage that we are reading doesn't talk about, but the rest of the chapter in John 15 does go on to talk about. The Holy Spirit who keeps working in our minds, he keeps clarifying scripture to us, he keeps working through our conscience, he keeps training us to understand more and more And he keeps helping all of us to work together as a community of God's people. Remaining in Jesus is about taking seriously all of those things. It is about opening God's word as regularly as we can. It's about coming to church as often as we can. It's about having fellowship with other believers who will help us and encourage us whenever we can, not just on a Sunday, any time. It's about, excuse me, it's about changing our conversation as we are with other believers. Why is it so much easier to talk about the new skirt that you've just bought than it is to talk about your favourite verse in the Bible? Why is it that after this morning's service, all of the guys, that's a generalisation, a lot of the guys talked about football and nobody mentioned any of the countries that we had focused on, any of the songs that we had sang, anything that God has said to us this week. Why is it that we live like that when we have an option to remain in Christ through all of these things that we've talked about and we actually have each other to help us do that? And I talked about football this morning too. We are all guilty of doing that all the time. But wouldn't it be good if we changed? Wouldn't it be good if we set ourselves different standards so that we encouraged each other daily in the way that we live in Christ? Christ is is the vine and he wants to hold us all together and not just us but all of the believers throughout this world he has got a hard job and we don't make his job easier do we because we don't try we don't when it comes down to it I don't think sometimes we really like each other anywhere nearly enough. If you're a gardener, you have a certain amount of choice. Some of the plants in my garden have now been put in the place where I would like them to stay. 
and they are dutifully growing in that particular spot. There are other plants that somehow seem to have got there. I think they're normally called weeds. They appear. I have not chosen them to be there. And I think they're the ones that will get thrown away. But God exercises choice in his garden too. God has chosen us, not just to be Christians, but he has chosen us to be together in Burlington. So we need to work with him in that, don't we? To be part of him, the same vine working together. And so we've got round to us, rather too quickly, I think, we've got round to us because so much of this passage comes down to our part in it. If God is the gardener and if Jesus is the vine, then we are the branches. And as the branches, we only have one job. We have the principal job of bearing fruit. That is what God has put us together in Burlington to do. That's what God has made us Christians to do. If a man remains in me and I in him, verse 5, he will bear much fruit. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Verse 8, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I wonder what fruit God likes best. Certainly, there is that superbly noble fruit of seeing other people become Christians. That's got to be a huge thing, hasn't it? As we talk about each other being believers, then surely what we should want most of all is for other people to be believers too. So evangelism is clearly a really obvious fruit for us to demonstrate. But that's a flipping hard one as well because so many of us get through the whole of our lives without actually seeing another person that we love and that we have prayed for diligently becoming a Christian. My mother has been a Christian now for about 50 years. Throughout that 50 years, she has prayed for her 11 brothers and sisters. I'm not sure she's prayed for all of them, but she's certainly prayed for her favourite ones amongst that massive group. So far, three of Mam's brothers and sisters have already died, and one currently is dying of cancer. And my mum is heartbroken because she has prayed 
for these people. Prayed and prayed and prayed and talked to these people about going to church and all of them's family think that she is a little bit loopy. She's got something slightly missing and she's not quite right. And the rest of us in my mother's family who are Christians, well, we're not quite right either, obviously, because we've got mum for our mother. So they're sympathetic, but not once has anybody in mum's family become a Christian. What does that say about my mother? Does it say that there is no fruit from her life? Well, of course it doesn't. She has tried. She has talked. The onus is not on other people's decision. The responsibility is on what you have done, how you have lived your life, and what you have said. The responsibility ultimately is not ours to make other people believe. We can't do that. But we can live faithfully, and I believe that my mother has done that. And there is other fruit, isn't there, as well. The Bible has lovely illustrations of other fruit. One is just here in this passage. This fruit of a prayer life which actually allows the God of the universe to dynamically work in our lives, answering our prayers, sometimes with yes, sometimes with no, sometimes with not yet. But part of our fruit is just the fact that we can pray to him. And then there are lists of fruit elsewhere. But the rest of this chapter talks an awful lot about the last one, the fruit of loving each other. They will know we are Christians by the love we have for one another. That's what Jesus talks about later in this chapter and elsewhere in this gospel. His huge concern is that we demonstrate the fruit of love. This is to my Father's glory, all of it. As we sit here on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, we don't just sit here for ourselves. We sit here because somehow or other, in a way that I cannot begin to understand, we give glory back to the Father. As we love each other, as we bear fruit, we bring glory back to God. And I think that is worth living for, to give glory to the gardener of all creation. And what is our response to be to this passage? What should we say before we leave? In verse 5, and verse 6 and verse 7, there is one word which stands out. If. If 
a man remains in me. If anyone does not remain in me. If you remain in me. God gives us a choice. And he gives us the choice every single day. Do we really want to grow in him? Do we really want to remain faithful to him? Do we really want to believe the gospel? Do we really want to love each other? If, what will your choice be tonight? And what will it be again tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and every single day of your life? until you die if will you choose god always and forever and back to claire let's pray as she comes forward father thank you so much for your word thank you lord god that you do prune us so that we can change so that we can be molded more and more in Christ likeness. Thank you that you keep giving us a choice as well. But Father, please help us to make the right choice. Help us to be your people, to remain in you, and to use each other to help us to do that. Help us, Lord, to reach out to each other in this church family and thank you for putting us here. Amen.